But certainly this is a happy day in the church calendar. And it's the beginning, of course, of the, the biggest, the most solemn, the most triumphant and joyful week in the church calendar. The week that we call Holy Week, which builds to a climax through Monday, Thursday, when we commemorate our Lord Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper and his being betrayed and arrested and denied. And Good Friday, when we remember his being put to death for our sins and Holy Saturday, when we think about the paradox of the living God lying dead in a tomb. And then after that, of course, comes Sunday morning when we will shout together, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Not yet, guys. Come on. I'm glad you can't hold it back. It is exciting. And what's perfectly fitting, I think, is that this begins with a remembrance of Jesus going into Jerusalem at the beginning of the biggest, most solemn, most triumphant, most joyful week of the liturgical calendar of his people, the Jews. And so he was going in at the beginning of their, perhaps, holiest week, but he wasn't alone, and it wasn't the only holy week. Jesus would have been, the best estimates think, one of about two and a half million pilgrims heading into Jerusalem. Can you imagine what that does both for the economy of a city and for uh, kind of the conditions in the city? As he was going in, he would have been just one of many, many, many untold multitudes of people, but for the fact that they were waiting for him. Word was spreading. Jesus is on his way. Here he comes. Now, Jesus had come to Jerusalem many times. It was part of the religion not only to come for Passover, but as often as possible to come three times a year for three different festivals or feasts. There was Passover. Of course, that is the remembrance of when they uh, were saved out of Egypt. And after all of the plagues had come and gone in order to really get Pharaoh's attention, uh, the angel of death came. And the firstborn of every household was put to death, except for those who killed a lamb, a spotless lamb, and painted their doorposts and knolls with the blood of the lamb, in which case the judgment passed over. And of course, for us who follow Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we see how he was preparing the way for that great sacrifice. Then there was Pentecost 50 days later, and there was Sukkot which is also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we were just in our, our Bible study, the men's Bible study, the last couple of weeks, reading about uh, how Jesus had gone into Jerusalem for that particular festival, and all sorts of stuff happened. Uh, it was kind of the beginning of a lot of the plots against Jesus, a lot of the attempts to trap him in his own words. And so Jesus would come into Jerusalem with his people multiple times every year for these celebrations. Now, the Feast of Booths, which you heard read all about there uh, in the first scripture reading, was to commemorate the 40 years that the Israelites had wandered in the wilderness, living in tents and other temporary structures. So for a week, they would build a little booth, a little lean-to or hut, and go live in it instead of in their house. And of course, this continues to this very day amongst the Jewish people as a practice. Let me read in Leviticus 23. And I know people talk about how boring Leviticus is. It's kind of this silly little joke. But I find it fascinating because we can read about these particular festivals and feasts and through the benefit of hindsight, sight, the eyes of faith, the understanding of the cross, we can see how God was laying the groundwork for what would come even in the New Testament. 
And so as you read in Leviticus 23, you find that central to this other holy week, this celebration of God's faithfulness, was the palm branch. In the Hebrew, it's called a lulav, and actually they would wave it interwoven with a willow branch and myrtle, but they still called the whole thing together a lulav, a palm branch, a branch from the date palm. They would hold in one hand a citrus fruit, which had other significance we won't get into now, and in one hand the palm branch and wave it and praise God together as part of this celebration. Now it was seven days long, and on the seventh day, just like with our Holy Week, it kind of builds, 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 the seventh day they called the Hoshiana Rabbah. Rabbah means big, great, huge. Hoshiana is the Hebrew or Hosanna. Can you hear that in there? Hoshiana, Hosanna. Actually, the Greek is Hosanna. And then we were like, well, we're from Michigan, so Hosanna. <laughs> but in that, they would get together and they would come out in this just festal celebration and procession, not unlike a Palm Sunday, and they would wave their lulav and they would pronounce seven Hosannas. Seven, of course, being the number of perfection or completion. There's so much packed into these celebrations and these things. And they would together pray this prayer, even again to this day, Baruch Atar Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and who has commanded us to take up the lulah, to wave the palm branch. This was part of their celebration. It, of course, evolved and grew over their history because God was always revealing more and more about what he was doing and what he would do. And we see that by the time Jesus comes on the scene and by the time Jesus enters into Jerusalem, sort of central to this celebration was Psalm 118, which we read part of that together as the call to worship this morning. It was a psalm that had long been understood to be a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm that points forward to the coming Messiah, who will bring us an era of peace, who will bring us every promise that God has ever made that seems yet unfulfilled. And so when we read things like this, this is, this is uh, starting in verse 9. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Think of these words on their minds as Jesus is entering. I thank you, Lord, that you have answered me and have become my salvation. What does Jesus' name mean, by the way? Salvation. That you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they are proclaiming this messianic psalm. In it is this word, Hosanna, or Hosanna. Now what does that word mean? Hey, you know, I think this might be the first year that everyone seems to know. <laughs> it, uh, people often think it means praise the Lord. They think it's just an exuberant cry. It's like uh, shamalama bing bong or something like that. But it has meaning. Yeah, in fact, what it means very literally, Hosea means save. And, and it's a, a command or, or in this case a request. Uh, it's in the imperative. Say, you can even hear it in how it sounds like Yeshua, Jesus' name, which means salvation. Hosea, and then the nah, it means like the opposite of us. It's not save us, nah. It's actually an intensifier. It, it, it can be translated, I think, save us, I pray, or save us, 
we beg you, or in the King James, save, we beseech thee. So they're saying save, and then intensifying it. Save, we pray. Save, we come to you and ask you to save. And that is what they are crying out, waving these palm branches. Well, over the course of the time, as this uh, feast is developing and evolving, so is the word Hosanna, like all words do. And it starts to have two things happen to it. First of all, it becomes less specific. The word still obviously means literally, save we pray, but it slowly becomes just a proclamation of praise. Like how people today might say, hallelujah. You know what that one means? A lot of people say it and don't know what it means, right? Well, does it mean praise the Lord? Yes, but it's actually also a command and imperative to multiple people. You all praise Yahweh. By the way, that word Yahweh, God's revealed name, is built into hallelujah, so don't use that one sarcastically. Oh, hallelujah, I found my peace. Bad idea, you're flirting at least with breaking the third commandment. But a lot of people will say hallelujah, and they're not being like Korah, the director of David's choirs, commanding multiple people. But no, they're just kind of shouting this word because they're filled with this desire to praise their God. The same thing sort of happens to Hosanna. It means save, we pray, but they shout it as a general term of praise. That'll preach. Praising our God is to say to him, save, we beg you. That's the relationship. You know, you look at all the gods of the, the nations, and they say, we're the greatest nation, and we have the greatest gods, so it works out perfectly. We're awesome, they're awesome, all right, rah, rah. Our God from the very beginning. Our God is the greatest God, the one who is. How do we know? He saves us. We come to him and say, save, we pray. And he moves his arm and he rescues us because he is a God of mercy and love who will take the broken to himself. That's the first thing that happens. The second thing is that it becomes more and more, much like Psalm 118, associated with the Messiah. It becomes a messianic praise. So you would shout Hosanna in a context where maybe you're thinking, we really want this Messiah to come. Lord, we praise you, and huh, now maybe? Could you bring him now? We would love to have the Messiah come to our midst right now. So this is a, a pregnant term as well. It's got so much meaning packed into it. And so is the waving of the palm branch, a very loaded action. Uh, the, the waving of the palm branch would have been, you know, victory, naturally, but also there was some messianic expectation wrapped up in that. We think about Isaiah 55, 12, right? We'll go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth in praise before us, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Remember, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, everyone's shouting praise, and the Pharisees say, tell them to shut up. He says, if, if they stopped, the very rocks would start crying out. And they're waving their palm branches, and if they stopped waving them, the very palm trees would start clapping their hands. Okay, there is this, this messianic kind of subtext to everything that's going on. The palm branch continues to be, uh, for Judah, the, the southern nation of Judah, where Jerusalem is the, the uh, capital, a important symbol. In fact, I have in my pocket here. I mean, they could be anything because you're far away from me. But these are some shekels from Israel. Uh, the five-shekel coin has the lulav on it. And that is a very important uh, symbol of, of Israel to this day. And so the, the idea of 
putting together messianic actions, messianic code words, messianic scriptures being quoted, so that we can shout, we're excited that our Messiah is here, and the Romans around us will say, what are they even talking about? It's, it's kind of all braided together in this one amazing triumphant entry. So messianic was the idea of the palm branch that, like I mentioned in the children's time, there were settings in which the kids would be given palm branches, and any time there was reference to the coming Messiah or the work of the Messiah, the kids would wave them, which I'm going to ask you to do now. Anytime you hear me talking about the coming of Christ as Messiah, you wave that thing, and I'll know you are awake. And I'll give you some of Alana's gold stars. So... We see this thing going back all the way to the institution of the Feast of Booths and all these festivals, but it goes back further yet. It goes back before David and his Psalms. It goes back before Moses, and it goes back even before Abraham. All the way back to Genesis. From the very beginning, I mean, Genesis 3.15, we've just had the fall of man into sin, and immediately God says, there's going to be a curse on the land. It's going to be hard to, to make a living. You're going to have pain in childbirth. All of this stuff's going to come, and it's going to be difficult. You brought it on yourself. But from the seed of the woman will come... Hey, there we go. Will come one who will crush the serpent's head and save you once and for all so that your cries of save we pray will be definitively answered. And what I love about the book of Genesis going into the Old Testament in general is that you have that very broad, I mean, the seed of the woman, that's like everybody, everybody, right? But it starts to focus in on that very blurry picture. And it gets more and more clear who we're dealing with. And that's why I love those genealogies. A lot of people skim through them. Bible geeks get all excited. Ooh, ooh, hold on, let me dig into this. Because I see in God selecting often the least likely people and the most shady people to be part of this, this messianic line, we see how he is coming to save sinners. Not just coming for the best and most outwardly righteous, but coming for those who would beat their breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I'm, I'm a sinful person. And he came for us. That is so exciting to me. And at the end of Genesis, we have the, the kind of... Uh, foreshadowing of much of the rest of the Old Testament. We, we've slowly zoomed in and focused in on who this Messiah would be, right? I mean, you have Adam and Eve, they've got Cain and Abel. Who's going to be the father of this Messiah? Well, Abel's out because he's dead. Cain's out because he killed him. Then here comes Seth. Seth is going to be the one through whose line will come the Messiah. Then, of course, through Noah. Noah's got three sons. Which one? Shem. Shem's the one through him. The Semitic line. So we follow that. And then finally God calls Abraham. Or he's Abram back then. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac fathers Jacob. Jacob fathers how many sons? Twelve. The twelve tribes of Israel. Only one of them can be the line through which Messiah will come. And it's which one? Judah. So Judah is going to be the one through whom the Messiah will come. So in Genesis 49, Genesis has 50 chapters, so we're way near the end. In Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. Jacob, who's been renamed Israel now. And he says, bring in my sons one at a time. I'm going to bless them. This is such a significant thing in their culture to, to put his blessing on them. And because he's this patriarch and he's God's man, he's chosen uh, to bring the Messiah into the world he says, I'm going to bless them. And in that blessing, we see not only insights into their character and how they live, 
but what will come out of each of them. It's fascinating when you read it and then you start looking at what happens to each of the tribes. Well, when they come in with Simeon and Levi, we learn that they were kind of psychos. And then in comes Judah. Also a little bit of a, a hard case, but this is what he says when he blesses his son Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Until Shiloh comes, which means the peacemaker, until he comes, the scepter will not depart. And then he talks about him tying his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And you might think, Pastor Zach, that's a bit of a stretch. And I would agree with you, maybe it would be, except for the fact that from the most ancient of times, that was seen as a messianic prophecy that would be fulfilled centuries before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This is already thought of as being a messianic prophecy. So that's way in the, the first book of the Old Testament. Go almost to the very end, to Zechariah. He's one of those last three prophets there at the end. And Zechariah is, is prophesying after they've returned from exile, but they're still being ruled by a foreign power. And this is what he writes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. He makes this prediction. And then, that's pretty much the end of the Old Testament. When he dies, there aren't any more prophets. For 400 years, we have that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there's not a peep from a prophet. We do have a little insight as to what happens then, though. Who, who here grew up uh, Roman Catholic? You guys have got some bonus books, some bonus features in your Bibles, right? We call it the Apocrypha. We don't believe that they're inspired uh, of the Holy Spirit in, in that way, our scripture, but they certainly are important books. They give us this insight into what happened in between the Old and New Testament. And in two of these books, First and Second Maccabees, we see this amazing story of God's faithfulness as these people who had been under the boot first of Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, finally, as the building messianic expectation is getting more and more intense, they just revolt, and they actually win their, their independence for a hundred years. And as we read about this stuff, in both 1st and 2nd Maccabees, you know what they do after these big, decisive victories? They wave their palm branches. And, and then, of course, after the hundred years of independence, Rome comes in, and once again, they're under the boot of an oppressive power, and once again, this expectation, this messianic anticipation begins to grow. People then are saying, I keep my eyes on the east gate of Jerusalem. We call the Messiah's gate because that's the one through which he's going to come. He's going to come and save his people. He's going to come and fulfill once and for all all of these promises that seem to yet be unfulfilled that God made to our ancestors. And when he comes, it's almost underwhelming at first. No one would have known as Jesus on Friday night with these 12 guys with him kind of shuffling into Bethany and going to sleep in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that this was the decisive moment. And then, on the 10th of Nisan, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And Holy Week begins in earnest. 
It doesn't come out of nowhere, of course. In Luke chapter 9, that early in the gospel, we read that Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to go there for the last time to there be crucified and then rise on the third day. And nine months and 35 stops later, here he is now entering in. And he is fulfilling these prophecies intentionally. There's no mistake here, okay? I mean, think about this. He's in Bethany, which is, you know, you go down into a valley. It's not too far. I think it's about seven miles, and then you're in Jerusalem. How are you going to make that trip? Well, if you're Jesus and you walk everywhere, you're probably going to walk. Or if you're tired and you're like, you know what? It's Passover. Let's splurge. You Uber up a camel, maybe, or some any other kind of mode of transportation. Instead, he's on a donkey. Now, I have heard people teach that this is in order to humble and humiliate Jesus. That that's the whole point of all this. That he's saying, look at me, you'd expect me to be as a king on a steed, up high, holding a sword. But instead, here I am, lowly, on a donkey, don't I look silly? I don't think that's exactly right. Uh, there, there may be, in our minds, a, a misunderstanding of, of donkeys because we have an idea of them being goofy. I mean, what's Shrek, right? You have the idea of them being stubborn, although I understand that they're actually rather smart. We think of them as being uh, kind of thick-headed animals. Uh, but the, the donkey was not all of that stuff. I mean, I, I used to think about this as, you know, an adult riding on the pony ride. You go to Potter Park Zoo, they have the ponies that just go around in a circle. Think about Sean getting on one of those and, and just kind of looking sheepish while he goes around and around. Actually, he's getting excited about the idea. But I, my son was about 10 years old when I said, hey, you want to do the pony ride? He was like, hey, there's girls around here. Be cool. <laughs> but the, the idea of Jesus just coming in on this little donkey to be humiliated does miss the fact that in the ancient Near East, kings would, yes, they'd come in on a horse with a sword if they were coming in war. But if they were coming in peace or returning in peace, they would come on a donkey. That was standard. So saying that he's coming on a donkey, it more indicates that he's coming in peace at this time. But there's truth to the other thing as well. Because, yes, a king might ride a donkey, but these sorts of eastern donkeys that, that rulers rode upon, they were bred specifically for procession. They were magnificent beasts. They had shiny, beautiful fur. They had elaborate saddles. They had braided into their mane and their tails gold and other beautiful things. Jesus rides just a normal beast of burden. And not even a full-grown one. This is a, a colt, a foal of a donkey. So he's, he's on kind of a smaller one. And there is something about it that says both, I am coming in peace and I am coming in great humility. It's a very loaded, like everything else on that Palm Sunday, it's a very loaded choice that he makes here. As he rides in to this city on the first day of a celebration that God had passed over and not judged his people based on the blood of a spotless lamb shed on their behalf. Now, when we picture this in our minds or when we see it portrayed in films or in passion plays and things, this is usually how it goes. Everybody's sort of shouting, you know, in chaos. Or everyone's sort of going, watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. And then once in a while, one person's voice will rise up, Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's not what we're dealing with at all. These are verbal people with a rich liturgical culture. 
They're not about to just be shouting chaotically. There would almost certainly be, especially because we're dealing with a psalm that was part of their worship, a call and response aspect to it. And not the very kind of solemn call and response kind of thing that we had in our call. Actually, this morning, our call to worship, we got a little bit, uh, we got a little bit excited, which is great. But I think they would have been even more excited. Uh, it reminds me, actually, of, of Promise Keepers. Uh, long, 25 years ago, when they were huge. Uh, Sean and I were both there. We didn't know each other then. But in 95, I remember being in the Silver Dome, 70,000 men there. All there to worship Jesus, become better husbands and fathers, and follow him more closely, and all this stuff. And when it was downtime between speakers, we'd do this thing where one side of the arena would shout to the other, We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And then the other side would respond, and it was really cool. And you might be thinking, wow, that's corny, but 70,000 of us thought it was awesome, so we win. And I think that's kind of the sort of vibe you would have gotten off the crowd this morning. I'm quite certain that you would have heard, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of There would have been a cadence to it. Psalm 118 is on their lips now. A psalm that brings them nothing but hope and expectation. And in verses 25 and 26, where we read, Hosanna, or save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is just so much hope wrapped up in that. And yes, as they shout Hosanna, many of them probably aren't even thinking about the fact that it means save us. But that makes it, I think, all the more beautiful. That that is what they're shouting to the Son of God, the Lamb of God, walking now into their holy city after centuries and centuries of expectation. And then, as they come up in procession, there is a spot where you can look out over all of Jerusalem. It's still there. Anybody you know who's gone there has probably showed you the selfie of them with the Dome of the Rock and the beautiful ancient wall and all the stuff behind them. I mean, I didn't force pictures on everybody when I got back, but some people do that. And, and it's just breathtaking. You look at it and you go, wow, this is it? And I imagine that everybody was just full of anticipation, giddy, floating two inches off the ground. And then Jesus, the man at the center of this whole party, begins to cry. Have you ever been at a birthday party or an anniversary party or something, and, and the, the person who the party's for begins to cry? I haven't, but I imagine that it would kill the mood very quickly. And when we read in Luke 19 about the triumphal entry, Jesus actually begins then to, to prophesy these, these horrible things about Jerusalem, and he's heartbroken about it. We read in Luke 19, 41 and following, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Even though they're there to welcome Jesus, they don't understand what's going on. They've missed the time of the coming of the Son of God. Many of them will never see it, and it breaks Jesus' heart. And it doesn't say this in the text, but I imagine that everybody kind of awkwardly looked around at this point, found their coat, dusted it off, and went back to where they were staying. Some of them probably got halfway home and went, this isn't my coat, but 
Have you ever seen a Bible movie? They are mostly the same. It's kind of the end of the thing, right? And the rest of the day goes without fanfare. What do we read about Jesus doing after that? Matthew 21, 10 through 11. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? This is the prophet Jesus from the uh, Nazareth of Galilee. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, Mark 11, 11. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he just went in, looked around, getting late, heading back to Bethany. And you say, hold on, it sounds in Luke like maybe he cleanses the temple that very day. No, it's quite clear from harmonizing the Gospels. That doesn't happen until Monday. So he enters in, he cries over Jerusalem, he weeps, he, he like, prophesies this stuff about judgment, he goes in and looks around the temple a little bit and heads back. There's almost an a anticlimactic aspect to this after all the buildup. What's happening here is that Jesus is fulfilling yet more of Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He is not coming in the way that they want. He's not coming to do what they want and be their puppet. He's not coming to lead a military coup. He is coming to save his people from their sins. He's coming to fulfill this passage in Psalm 118, verses 19 and 20 where we read about him coming in through the gate. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And that sounds like all righteous people can enter through it. That's singular in the Hebrew. The righteous one will enter through it. Jesus has fulfilled the letter of this by entering in, but not in a way that anyone expected because they thought there'd be a lot more. They probably thought, I know where I can get a sword if it goes down right now. I know exactly what I'm going to do when we throw Rome off our shoulders. And yet Jesus looks around the temple, dries his tears, and goes back to Bethany. Then, of course, we have that exchange. Who is this? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We can tell that the people, even though they're, they're shouting messianic praise and quoting messianic psalms and waving messianic palms... They still don't quite get it. They're damning him with faint praise. He's the prophet. Sure, he's a prophet from Nazareth, but that's the least of what he is. For this reason, I've heard people preach that perhaps it's not a great idea for us to celebrate Palm Sunday the way that we do. To emulate these people who didn't even understand what was going on, who this guy was, who missed the boat. That instead, we should do the opposite. Right? We should have a solemn day, weeping like Jesus wept. That it should start Holy Week not with joy, but with sorrow. I've even heard it taught that the crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, is the very same crowd that was shouting, Crucify, Crucify. Although I find that nowhere in my Bible. And even if there are 10,000 people there welcoming him in, remember, out of 2.5 million pilgrims. It's possible, maybe even likely, there was a little overlap. But why would we think this is the very same group? I suggest that Palm Sunday ought to be a joyous affair. Why? Because in Psalm 118, it says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It says that right after it tells us that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And right before, save us, O Lord, we pray. This is the day that the Lord has made. And we understand what God was doing, at least better than they did. And yet there they were. They were there welcoming him. They didn't have it all figured out. They weren't sure what this week would bring. 
What they knew was Jesus is coming. Let's go where he is and let's say, save us. Let's ask him to save us. Let's offer him praise. Let's throw our coats on the, the road and, and palm branches to make straight and soft his way into the city. We have the advantage of knowing how the rest of Holy Week played out. We know that Jesus was not lifted up in military victory, but rather his triumph was to be lifted up on a cross, which, as Neil Plantinga has pointed out, is as absurd as being honored by a firing squad or enthroned on an electric chair. But we see that this is what God was up to. We still haven't figured it all out, by the way. Look at how just completely petty we'll get with one another over the, the most detailed aspects of how we understand Jesus' death and our salvation. And how people will be rifts between believers about it. How, how does God's grace and our faith interact? God's sovereignty and our will. Our being saved and, and our response to the salvation. All these things. And it's important stuff and we should discuss it and we should study. But to be a follower of Jesus at the end of the day means to go where Jesus is and to say, Lord, save me. I don't know exactly how. I don't know quite how it works. But I trust that you are the God who saves. We know, looking back, that Palm Sunday is empty without Good Friday and Easter morning. We know, with the benefit of Scripture and hindsight, that that beautiful triumphal entry was also, in a sense, a funeral procession for Jesus. We know that it's so significant that Jesus entered on the 10th of Nisan because that was the day in the celebration of the Passover that each family would choose their Passover lamb. And then they would watch the lamb from the 10th to the 14th, and then they would kill it. And it would be symbolic, the blood of God's having passed over them in judgment. And of course, they chose their lamb on that day. The crowds chose him. Caiaphas, the high priest, chose him. On behalf of all the people, saying, It is better for one man to die that all might live. That all the people might live. Jesus being lifted up was not in some kind of grand red carpet ceremony. As he walked in, I don't believe that he gave in to pride. He was probably tempted. He was tempted in all ways as we are. But as he came in, he wasn't thinking, oh, you like me. You really, really like me. No, he was weeping because he saw that they didn't quite understand the depth of his love. I think we see this symbolism nowhere better than in Ash Wednesday. Six weeks ago, I put a, floor, a cross of, of ashes on your forehead in repentance. And we began this journey of Lent. And I told you on that day where the ashes come from, as I do every year. They come from a previous year's palms. One year's Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is another year's repentance. And recognizing that we do not fully grasp who Jesus is. We have not fully followed him. We have not loved him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. This triumphant entry, this, this beautiful day of, of Hosanna, always brings us back around to humble repentance. A reminder that we do not follow Jesus from Palm Sunday directly to Easter. So that it's nothing but joy and smiles and new clothes and, and breakfast together, egg hunts. I've had one Cadbury egg so far this year. I think there are a few more to come. But that we follow him, not directly to a throne, but through suffering. 
Just like going from Bethany to Jerusalem was going down through a valley. So going from Palm Sunday and Hosanna in the highest to He is risen is going down through the valley of the shadow of death. We see that Jesus is at work in all of these things. That the king who came in peace riding on the foal of a donkey is the king who was then mocked for being the king on Friday morning. That he was, everything they did was meant to mock the idea that he was the rightful king of the Jews. The sign they put on the cross, the putting up the crown of thorns rather than a crown of, of gold on his head, wrapping him in a scarlet cape that would chafe against the wounds from the scourge. All of it. Psalm 118, verse 22. We see the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and we see that on uh, Good Friday more clearly than anywhere else. But there's also a promise of something more to come in all this. Because when you read these passages, there's two sides to them. In Zechariah 9, 9, we read greatly, uh, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That was fulfilled on this day. But then the very next verse says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's an end times prophecy. That is yet to come. That's in his second coming. When he will come, according to the book of Revelation, not on a donkey, but on a horse. We read that in Revelation 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a voice, a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Notice this, they wave their palm branches, but they don't say save us. It's done. It's finished. They pray salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. What we saw in the very first book of the Bible, we see then fulfilled in the very last book of the Bible. There's a, a beauty to that. I saw heaven opened, Revelation 19. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is the same Messiah who came in humbly and wept over Jerusalem. Because they did not see the time of his coming. And yet, those people who came and welcomed him did what they understood to do. They said, Jesus is there. Let's go find where Jesus is. Let's go where Jesus is. And let's shout, Hosanna, save us. They didn't have it all figured out. And yet that's what they did. And listen, maybe today this is you. Maybe you have not put your faith in Jesus. 
Maybe you've thought, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I, I've been going to church for quite a while, but I haven't really believed on him. Today, listen for the calling of the Spirit and respond. You need, when you cry, Hosanna, save me, save me, I pray. You need to go where Jesus is, and I don't mean church. I mean that we expect to find him at the high points, right? Where's Herod thinking he's going to find the baby Jesus? In a palace somewhere. He's looking for power. Instead, he's in a food trough. Where would you think you would find Jesus on the day of his coronation? You'd think you'd find him sitting on high in a silver throne, surrounded by crystal. Instead, we find him preparing to lay down his life, beaten, scourged, mocked, spit upon, laughed at, and bleeding out and, and choking to death. They're hanging from the cross. All of these things point us toward repentance and the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is lowly, comes to us with gentleness and grace. We're reminded that, yes, he comes again at the very end on a horse of war, but in this moment he throws wide the doors of salvation and says, all who will come, all who will come, and I will save you. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If we have been rejecting him, now is the best time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is when we need to say, Lord, Hosanna, save me. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for those of us who have put our faith in him, and for whom this is the beginning of yet another holy week, in which we will walk with Christ through the difficult and dark times, knowing that he will be triumphant and walk out of that empty tomb. Remember, we still follow him to the cross, not directly to the throne. That he said, if you will follow me, if you will be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Yes, wave your palm branches and shout Hosanna. Yes, be excited. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But remember, this is the Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. This is the Jesus who cleansed the temple in anger. This is the Jesus who went to the cross after being so overwhelmed that he, he actually sweat blood and then died on our behalf. We follow him not just when times are happy and exciting and then we find our coats, dust them off, and go back home. We follow him through all of the seasons of life. We follow him through the valley of the shadow of death. We follow him to the mountaintop and we come back down, even though Peter was like, ah, I don't want to come back down, let's stay on the mountaintop. I'll build, hey, I know how to build booths because of the Feast of Tabernacles. I'll build, that's the wood he uses, by the way. I'll build a few of them, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for Jesus. said, no, listen, to follow me means to follow me. Let's go back down the mountain. There's going to be people that we need to heal. There's going to be people we need to preach the good news to. There's going to be people we need to comfort. And following Jesus looks like that to this very day. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this unusual story of a king who comes to be coronated, is welcomed by throngs of people, and then begins to weep. And Lord, we thank you that this story is not the usual story of a conquering king who comes, puts his enemies under his feet, and rules with an iron rod, because Lord, we would have been counted amongst those enemies. Instead, we thank you that he came to die on a cross and rise again so that we could be counted amongst his friends, so that we could be your sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, on this 
Palm Sunday, that we have a Savior whose, whose property is always to show grace and love and mercy. A God who, who does not only come for the powerful and mighty like the gods of the nations, but a God whom to praise Him is to say, save, I pray. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.